Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Full disclosure, Jill Kargman, creator and star of Bravo's hit scripted series, Odd Mom Out, and I don't have a ton in common. She's a mom of three. I'm not. She grew up and has been raising her family in the schmancy Upper East Side neighborhood of Manhattan. I lived there only briefly as a very, very single girl. She adores skulls and tattoos. Me, not so much. But there is one thing that Jill and I do have in common, and it's the very thing that made me want to get her into the studio today, badly, to talk about... That is, the familiar feelings we all have from time to time about not fitting in. Unlike other television series, movies, and memoirs that recount and almost romanticize the sad, often devastating miseries of feeling exiled or like a complete outsider in your own life, Jill's depiction of not fitting in reads like major life goals. Between her character's enduring affection for her sweet husband, her 10 calls a day devotion to her BFF, her underwear dance parties with her kids, and her daily battles to live her truth out on the mean streets of New York where zombie moms, posers, and aristocratic drones seem to be lurking around every corner. Jill Kargman is happy to give them all the middle finger. With a smile, of course. Jill Kargman, um, creator and writer of Odd Mom Out. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a ginormous fan. And one of the big reasons I was so excited about having you on the show was because I loved this theme that you talk about where this feeling of not fitting in Mm -hmm. and just being in this daily struggle to kind of fight for your independence and your individuality from all of these ridiculous, stereotypical sort of tropes of, of a life like yours. And, um, and obviously one of those big themes is, is parenting and, um, and what parenting is like today, especially in a place like New York City, especially in a place like the Upper East Side. I would love for you to talk a little bit about just that feeling of not fitting in. I think, you know, as you said, a lot of people are responding to it who are not moms. And I think that's really the proof that it has nothing to do with parenting. I mean, we have so many gay male viewers. We have so many teenage girl viewers. And I I feel like it has nothing to do with moms. It's, it is just about keeping up and fitting in. And anyone who's ever felt like marginalia, I think, will relate. Sometimes you're forced into this milieu because of you happen to spread your legs and you shout out kids the same year and so you have to be friends with these people and see them and have mom's coffees and you're kind of stuck in this high school you know redux where there's like a pecking order and the people have four kids and it's your first kid and they're like just wait wait till you see what happens next there's all kinds of (laughs) like mom hierarchies so I think like wherever you are and the yardstick may change what is important like I know in New York schools are important to people but there's a metric that shifts from community to community that moms will try to one up each other because I do think in the absence of a professional career if you choose to stay at home sometimes not every stay-at-home mom but sometimes people start obsessing about little things and get caught up in gossip or, you know, when you don't have a promotion at work or a business card with a new fancy title, I think people create echelons to ascend so that they can feel superior to other people. And when I was a new mom, I felt like I was constantly 
falling short. Like the people who nursed because I didn't nurse, someone had said, shame on you. And, you know, I was like, I probably had postpartum because I was crying during like a Volvo commercial. But the littlest thing where some bitch at the playground would be like, oh, I would never give that jar of baby food. I, It's really easy. You just go to the farmer's market and you boil down the butternut squash and then you puree it and your Vitamix. It's, much, it's really easy and it's so much better than that, you know? And I just wanted to be like, fuck off. But I wasn't – now I'm 42, like I would say fuck off. And but, you were 28 then. Yeah, and I felt much more – and I'm not an insecure person. I've always been very confident and I was never depressed, not as a teenager, nothing. And somehow I had Sadie and I felt so insecure, so depressed, like so off kilter and not myself. And it took a while to like crystallize back that I could still be me and that my entire identity wasn't subsumed in offspring now. I think one of the big cornerstones of your series is that you give equal weight to your relationship with your husband and your best friend, Vanessa. And I think that that's such an important visual to see because I think a lot of young women today feel like you have to choose. I mean, I remember when, you know, I was younger in my 20s and early 30s and people started pairing off and getting married. And that experience of being left behind is really painful. I felt that it was very important to me that Vanessa stayed a central relationship because that was always what the show was. When I originally pitched it to Bravo, was like, you know, we were the two men in the Muppet show in the balcony, <laughs> seeing the world the same way, even though we had different backgrounds. And I have a real best friend named Vanessa. My parents' marriage, they've been married for 45 years. They're really happily married, but they do have traditional roles and my mom was is super domestic and an amazing cook and my dad was the breadwinner and in their marriage, it was that typical TV marriage where she didn't have, like, the best friend to run to. And then when I got married – and I I love my husband. We have a very good relationship. But we've had ups and downs. And I think part of it was because I came to it with this bubble that I grew up in, like, happily ever after. And you have to be my everything. And you're the one. And you're going to be my whole world. And that totally fucked me up because then I realized, like, no one person can be your everything. Or if if it was in the past, great, but that's not modern. And I needed my friends as a life raft to vent about marriage even, to vent about my kids, to vent about things. And I had kind of the opposite of you where I felt like I was not left behind per se, but like – You're out on your own. I was on my own. They were all dancing on tables at Bungalow 8 and like blowing hot bartenders – and I was sitting there, you know, in this little tiny fifth floor walk up with this baby that wouldn't stop crying. And I, I know that I wanted it, but I remember thinking, God, 3 a.m. is the loneliest hour in the world. And I'm sitting here trying to feed this baby. But my friends were like out and banging people and having fun. And I, I didn't feel like I was missing out on that because I'm really not a bar party girl type. But then when I was in the mommy world, I felt like I didn't belong there. So I was kind of just solo. There is a great episode in season two um, about this friend date. You have a new friend. She's a, she's also a mom. And you're really excited. It's going to be like this new sort of like double date you're going to go on and it's going to be fun. You're going to, you know, she seems like a cool one. She's not like these other zombie moms. Yeah. And it turns into... The dreaded dinner party. I can't stand group dinners because I'm funding their alcoholism. And it takes 
three times as long because they're trying to get 14 orders and 14 appetizers cleared and it's a shit show. And I, well, you know, I used to say like, I'm sorry, I have to be in bed by Jon Stewart. Throw cash on the table and just right, like, peace but out. Then, but then you can't do that sometimes because of credit card roulette with the hedge fund guys. Explain for, for the listeners out there who didn't see the episode. It's basically a like a gambling thing that these, you know, guys swinging their dick around will say, okay, there's eight couples. So all the men are going to put in their credit card and then have the waitress pick one out and they pay for the whole dinner. And so you're kind of shamed into it. So Harry, the first time, you know, someone's like credit card roulette and all these guys are slamming down like Amex black cards and we had the one sad green one. And I was Remember shit. Since 89. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and my my husband sort of looked at me. I was totally shitting because we we were like still cobbling our rent every month. And luckily, we did it maybe three different times and they never picked us. But people do that and get off on it. I read in an interview that you did, you talked about how you remembered um, growing up in the Upper East Side um, and you went to private school, but you remembered that there were people um, that were really wealthy that you went to school with oh, that yeah. were embarrassed. They were by... more, there was an embarrassment of riches. And there were girls in my class whose dads were legit Gordon Gecko types. And they would ask to be dropped off three blocks from school and walk because they were mortified. And you don't see that now at all. It's like everyone tricks out their car and they do selfies on their private jet. It is the opposite of what it was actually in the 80s. Even though people think of that as so flashy and full of conspicuous consumption, it's so much worse now. But don't you think that social media has kind of given us this urgency about finding these these sort of venues for us to be sort of seen in our in our best light? Yeah, that's the very pernicious side to social media that I'm trying to talk to my kids about, especially now that I have a teenager. I think people have a curated, filtered version of themselves. So they're putting forth their kind of best self. And then people take that as fact and assume that they're living La Vida Loca. And look, she's always so perfect. And there's actually a new – my daughter actually teaches me about these apps. But there's some beauty thing that fully contours your face. I mean, it's like airbrushing what, you know, Avedon would do for a model and really modelizes you. Which is fucked up. It's so fucked up. It's really fucked up for young girls. And I try to tell Sadie, don't do these posing things where you're doing the, like you just sucked on a lemon, you know, the, the girls all pose like that with the pouty, like that Olsen face. Yeah. And what it means to try to be fabulous like why would you try to be fabulous (laughs) let let them all do that tell us about like the the storyline and the arc from season one to season two season one I feel like we were first establishing the world and introducing everybody to my little family my kooky family all the characters but in the pilot Lex my brother-in-law has sold his company for 675 million so instantly these two brothers that Abby Elliott's character and I are married to are leading very different lives, even though they're both, quote, privileged. As you know, in New York, you can be successful and still feel poor because everybody's doing so well. Or seems like they're doing so well. Correct. It's strange that you can be successful here and still feel middle class somehow. It's it's bizarre. But real estate is just crazy. And trying to apply the kids to kindergarten is the sort of through line as a C-level story, not the main thing. But the thrust is sort of you know, how are you supposed to compete in this town? I mean, really, it's so many people who are very successful. And how do you put your imprimatur on your kids to have them, you know, have good values when their peers are also raising them? And um, But really, I think the comedy is in my fuck-ups and not feeling. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Like I belong. And even when you take me out of the Upper East Side and drop me in Brooklyn, I still don't fit there either. And that was a true story too. I was flirting with moving to Park Slope. And we, at the time, Brooklyn was less expensive than Manhattan, which is now not the case. But when I had small children, Brooklyn was cheaper and I could have gotten way more space out there. So I flirted with it pretty heavily. And I went to like this tots and tonic thing with moms and they were in a bar and they just seemed more normal. This sounds so superficial, but like they dressed like not in full, you know, Jay McLaughlin threw up on them and Tori Burch and Manolo Blahniks and blowouts. Like they looked like me. They were in T-shirts. They were in black. They they just felt like my people. And then one of them was nursing her five-year-old and another one is talking about composting. You trade in one set of problems for another. And I realized that I would rather be sort of the chill mom in an uptight world than the uptight mom in a chill world. You make a celebration of not being a joiner. And I think that it's really annoying when you don't want to sort of glom on to the the soul cycle craze or the Game of Thrones craze, although I know you wouldn't agree with that. The Hamilton episode was really, really hilarious because I, too, had not seen Hamilton at that point. But I think that instead of feeling alienated, um, as I think a lot of people do, you really make it a celebration. You make it fun to actually it's okay to be left out and it's okay if you're not going to actually kind of buy into that whole session. That was a true story. I came into the writer's room and I said, I just got attacked at drop off because these moms were all like, you haven't seen it. You have to see it. You have to see it. You have to see it. And it was like 30 people at once and they felt bad for me. It wasn't just like Hamilton shaming me. They, they pitied me. It was like almost hilarious. I think if you can laugh about it, that's like my first offense with everything is then you can celebrate it. Your dad has been a longtime executive at Chanel. I'm pretty sure Karl Lagerfeld designed your wedding dress, correct? Yes, he did. It was my wedding gift from the company, That's which a nice is wedding the gift. best present ever. Yeah, my dad was a stand-up comedian, and he put his way through Columbia Business School doing comedy in Atlantic City and the Borscht Belt. And he did Harris, and he did Reno and Atlantic City stand-up comedy. And he really wanted to go and do that. And his father basically shut it down. It was like an over my dead body situation. So he went into business and he was successful in business. But I still maintain that his working the rungs, aside from very, very hard work, was his sense of humor was a great weapon for him because it's very bonding and disarming with the clients. And he just really connects with people. And he's very, very close with people. He makes everybody feel like what I hear Bill Clinton does. Like he makes you feel like you're the only person, the in, only the room. person in the room. And he remembers everybody and he's so warm and affectionate. And I think, you know, that was a huge asset to him in business. 
Do you think you got your love of comedy and your appreciation of stand-up comedy from him? 100%. My mom is, she's French, so she's, she's a little bit more shy. She's not a ham the way that my dad and I are, but she speaks five languages. So I think I got the appreciation from my dad and the ham stuff, but my mother has the crazy ear with accents. Like, that is all my mom. She is unbelievable. She was a UN translator. And she's just a perfect polyglot with no po- no accent. It's weird. Are you the only singer in the family? I mean, yes, but I'm sure my mom has a good voice. She's just shy about it. Have you done musical theater? Just in college, but I'm doing a show. It, it's going to come to the Carlisle in January. That's incredible. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's heavy metal cabaret. So I'm doing, it's piano player, but I'm singing really, really sexist songs from my childhood. But I'm reappropriating Like which ones? Them. Give us an example. Like 17 by Winger, which is an anthem to statutory rape. <laughs> girls, Girls, Girls by Motley Crue, where I list all the strip clubs in America. I came of age with those songs, so I love those songs. And I didn't realize they were wrong until I was older, so I'm taking them back. That line was very blurry back in the day. Mm-hmm. Has style really played a big role in your life? And I think that as your character on Odd Mom Out, you really stand out. You wear a lot of black. You're just a really stark contrast to all the other characters. But how has style and and just fashion in general, how has that helped you to sort of define your own character? It's been a very strong influence. But ironically, it's more my mom than my dad because, yes, I was exposed to Chanel and I was at fashion shows and that stuff. But my mother's sense of style is so incredible and so perfect, even if she's going to Gristides. And she can be just throwing on like black leather jeans or something, but she looks amazing. I definitely feel like it was just by osmosis growing up in a house with a super stylish mom. But I don't wear Chanel. I mean, it's still very expensive with discounts and everything. So I really don't wear Chanel. I wear some shoes sometimes. But people always think like, I mean, on Twitter, they'll be like, oh, she wears head to toe Chanel. I'm like, none of this is Chanel. It's actually like Urban Outfitter skirt. And then, you know, I mix like nice things and... But I, I won't, like, normally instead of, say, like, Prada, I'll do the, the Junior Mimi one or something, and that's my splurge. I'm just not in a point with three kids in private school that I can no. ever drop that on stuff. I would love to just talk a little bit about the transition from writing books to the show. It made me so curious about your writing just because you have such a specific sense of humor and a way of unpacking ideas. Thank you. The the really the stepping stone from the books to this show was the book Sometimes I Feel Like a Nut. And my editor at the time at HarperCollins had said, I want you to write a nonfiction. And I said, she said a memoir. That was the word she used. And I said, memoir? Why, who am I to write a memoir? Don't you have to like go through shit? And I'm 34 years old. And I was sort of drowning in my life at that point because it was really hard having three kids under five. And I started writing this essay collection only because I was diagnosed with melanoma at 34. And I kind of snapped after that. I, I They took out all the lymph nodes from my vag. I have a foot long scar on my upper thigh. Where was the melanoma, if you don't mind me like asking? It was upper, upper thigh, like near vag. So they had to strip the lymph nodes out of there. So I have another scar like on my box. And so after that, I wrote the essay called Tumor Humor, which uh-huh. is about how funny and fucked up and weird it was for me. Did you see it or was it invisible? It was it was not black. I just felt it kept bleeding all the time. Oh. I would just there'd be like blood on my towel when I would dry off. And then I noticed there was like a mole up there and it was constantly bleeding. And my dermatologist was like, yeah, I don't think I think you're being hysterical. 
And it's such a sexist word, really, because uster is uterus, the, the root Greek root. I and I convinced that, that if I were a man, they never would have said that. So another year went by with this growing tumor. It was an M&M under my skin. Uh, finally, I went to another doctor who, who took it off, and it was it was upsetting. But in a weird way, it set in motion a series of events, first of which was this essay tumor humor, then selling the memoir book, which is all comedic essays. And that is the voice of Odd Mom Out. That book is called Sometimes I Feel Like a Nut. That's the voice of the show. So when I met with Andy Cohen, I said, NBC bought my book, Momzilla's. Can't you just fish it out of the red tape and make it as a show? But they really couldn't, like legally. It was bought with an entity that was no longer there. So I sent him Sometimes I Feel Like a Nut and Lara Spots, my executive. And they read both Momzilla's and Sometimes I Feel Like a Nut. And they're like, this in a blender is our show. I mean, it's my voice, which is Sometimes I Feel Like a Nut, but set in the world of Upper East Side Momzilla's. So you've been married for 15 years. What do you think the, I don't want to say what the secret is to a long and happy marriage, because I do think that especially when you go through things, and I'm sure having having three children and and living in a fifth floor walk up, hauling a hauling a stroller up and down stairs when you're young, you know, matures you. So, what do you think the secret has been for for you and your husband in terms of feeling in love or feeling happy and satisfied? That's such a good question. I feel like I have no answers. We had a really sort of dark moment right around the melanoma thing. I felt like I had no identity. Like I was Harry's wife and Sadie and Ivy and Fletch's mom, and I kept saying to him, "I feel like I'm drowning in my life." And I decided to get a shrink. And so I felt almost like a failure that I felt that I asked for help. I went to her very, very faithfully every week or two until we sold the show, until I was 39. So maybe five years I saw her. And she helped me a lot with marriage stuff because she said, you're in middle marriage. You have these little kids. You've got to just get through to the other side because – I mean, I hate to say this because I obviously love my kids, but they put a huge strain on my marriage. And we were bickering a lot. And I felt undervalued and underappreciated because I was so exhausted, but I didn't have anything to technically like show for it at the end yeah. of the day. Like when you're a stay-at-home mom, there's no certificates. You know, they want their, their food or their thing cut up this way. No one's ever like, you're the best mom. They do now, actually. When they're older, they do. But when they're little... It's really hard and draining. And so like when Harry would come home and be like, did you have fun today? And I'd be like, fun? <laughs> fun? Are you fucking kidding me? I'm exhausted. And I, I just was like so on edge. But then I feel like the cancer thing gave me a weird reset button. Like I, I chopped eight inches off my hair and I got my tattoo and I got a gun license. I started shooting. I joined a West Side Pistol gun club. I started shooting every week. I just needed something that was mine, and I I didn't know wh- how to articulate it, but I kind of snapped. And my husband, you know, was sort of like, what is happening to my wife? She's freaking out. I was like, I'm sorry. I was just <laughs> sawed open. My vag was ripped open. I was in a wheelchair. I, then I had a cane for another two months. But it was really scary, and so I, I had this kind of – if you pull the elastic far enough one way, it kind of snaps in the other direction. And I just had to, like, decide that I was going to take some sort of power back. And then I did because when I wrote the book – it kind of crystallized that I don't want to do fiction. I want to be myself. I don't want to hide it behind characters to tell a story. I want to just tell it myself. And then that's really how the show came. Your real life is way better than fiction. <laughs> Thanks. Jill Kargman, it's so nice to have you, you on the are show. You're awesome. I'm You're gi- so good at this. Oh, I'm such a gigantic fan of yours. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Really fun. I hope you're inspired after hearing Jill Kargman's story. 
For even more unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be super grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on iTunes and rate us while you're there. You can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced and edited by Elisa Kreisinger, with production assistance from Rebecca Easley for Refinery29. Copy and research support provided by Lila Brilson. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff. Hannes Brown produced our episode music, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist. We'll see you back here for a conversation with Rachel Comey on Becoming Self-Made.